Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic Wear on Instagram at Picnic Wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. 
To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. Find us on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is being recorded in a very cold room. <laughs> We're still trying to work it out, but my studio, which is, you know, just a room in our house, is really, really cold. Like, my nose is already getting numb. <laughs> anyway, I'm your host, Amanda. I sound a lot better today, right? I want to thank all of you who reached out with well wishes and your own sinus clearing tricks. I promise that I tried all of them, and that's why I'm feeling so much better today. I know I'm a little hoarse. My head hurts a tiny bit too, but man, so much better than just a few days ago. But <laughs> about three hours after I released Wednesday's episode, as you know, insurrectionists invaded the U.S. Capitol building. Well, I don't know about you, but I've been extra anxious, extra angry, extra just about everything negative since then. And so I thought about holding off on releasing today's episode, but then I was like, why? And until when? Because I can't imagine a day right now when everything will just be, quote, better, the perfect time for everything. So at the very least, you know, listening to this episode will be a nice break. Because that's something that I struggle with too. Like, Reckoning the privilege of turning off the news and taking a break from current events. Much like saying, oh, I'm not a political person is the hallmark of immense privilege. I've always felt that ignoring the news also indicates an extremely high level of privilege because the news is happening to people right now. I remember a past boyfriend telling me, your problem is that you care too much about what's happening and you consume too much news. I mean, that statement alone points to a certain level of privilege on his part, right? And yes, he was white and upper middle class, but I'll say that it's something I've been trying to balance for a long time, especially in the last year, because I feel like I'm constantly walking this like mental health tightrope where my ability to function on a day-to-day -day basis requires, you know, balancing my news consumption. I would love to hear from you about how you maintain that balance because it's really, really hard for me. And, you know, the news happens to real people, people I know, people I haven't met yet, but I can relate to that kind of stuff. And so it's a tough one. Well, here at Close Horse, we're in the midst of trash month. What a way to begin the year, right? <laughs> 
So we have a lot more trash talk for you here today. This will be the second half of my conversation with Jessica Schreiber, the founder and CEO of FabScrap. Today we'll be talking about how spandex crept into everything we buy, how she started FabScrap, and the challenges slash future of mitigating fabric waste, and so much more. I also have a great letter from Helen and a phone call from Carrie about what it's like to volunteer at FabScrap. So this is going to be a great episode. Before we get trashy, <laughs> it's time to thank the newest Patreon supporters. First is Denise Mishowitz. Yes, I did message her to find out the correct pronunciation of her last name because you know how much I hate butchering someone's name. Denise and I also had a really nice chat about all the stuff we and our friends used to dye their hair in the 90s, including Kool-Aid and Jell-O. Because you know what? Manic Panic was hard to get if you lived out in the country, right? If you didn't live in the big city. I will tell you this. Be really careful when you dye your hair with non-hair dye things. I'm pretty sure I gave a friend just like a mild chemical burn around their ears and the edge of their face from the citric acid in red Kool-Aid in like, I don't know, 11th grade. So just be careful. And thank you for your support, Denise. Next is Allison Murphy of Bend, Oregon. You know, I get really excited when we get another Oregonian as a patron. Allison is the person behind Utilituso, and she's making some really cute masks that you should check out. Uh, thank you so much, Allison. Ann Bayer, or Bayer, I should have checked with her, is also a new patron, and she's our first patron from Germany, which makes me feel very international and successful. So thank you so much for your support, Anne. And last but not least is Charlotte Stone. I happen to know that Charlotte owns the Barbie McDonald's, and I feel really honored to be supported by someone who recognizes the glory of a Barbie-sized hamburger and fries. Thank you, Charlotte. If you would like to support Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can learn more at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. And I'll include that link in the notes, of course, because like you're not writing that down right now. <laughs> if Patreon is not your thing, but you really want to support Clothes Horse financially, you can also make a one-time donation via Venmo, where you'll find me at Crystal Visions. That's my Instagram username too, so that's an easy way to remember, but I'll also put that in the show notes. This week, Bethany chose to support the podcast via Venmo, which thank you so much, Bethany. And she said to me, it was just the nicest message. Your podcasting is so special. I save it as a treat slash motivation to do more on sewing and creative projects. So the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much, Bethany. Also, if you're interested in supporting the podcast via PayPal, just send me a message and I will send you all the information. Basically, I'm saying that because I can't remember my PayPal username, so I need to look it up. <laughs> and of course, you don't need to spend a dime to support Close Horse, and I can't say that enough. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts, you can share our content with friends, you can recommend it to your coworkers, or don't do any of that and just keep listening, because without listeners, does a podcast even exist? That's really deep, isn't it? <laughs> Okay, so moving on, as I mentioned in the last episode, I received a great email from Helen. 
You might remember that she gave us an update on the status of home economics education in the UK a few months ago. Here's what Helen has to say. Something that has been on my mind a lot recently is the Uyghurs and the forced labor situation that is going on. I cannot believe this is not main news coverage, that governments are not doing everything they can to stop this, and that huge global businesses are actively and knowingly profiting from forced labor in 2020. How can businesses like Nike use racial equality as a marketing tool whilst they are literally profiting off the forced labor of a group singled out purely for their race? or forced labor of any kind, or any kind of exploitation of people of color. I've singled out Nike because I recently read Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog, and it makes my blood boil. I feel like he slash they are given absolute hero status, and it makes me sick. But the same goes for any large fashion company, tech company, and doubtless many other industries profiting from the exploitation of people of color. I would love to hear an episode on that if it is something you would like to cover. I feel that somebody needs to talk about it because most people do not know what is going on. I saved Helen's email for this episode because I really want to talk about the imprisonment and forced labor of the Uyghur Muslims. I've talked about this in the past, but I think it requires a revisit. To start with, just like Helen, I do not understand why this isn't constant front page news. I mean, this is so major. We're talking about slavery and concentration camps here. And I rarely encounter mainstream news coverage of it. I can only speculate that it relates to numerous factors. And once again, this is purely speculation. One is that there is an anti-Muslim implicit bias, both within our cultures, within our societies, and definitely within the media. And here in the United States, and I can assume also probably in other nations as well, there's just really intense anti-Muslim sentiment, and it's very mainstream. Also, I would say that so many companies, and I mean major companies, are implicated in the use of Uyghur labor, including, as Helen mentioned, Nike. But the list is long, including... Zara, H&M, Uniqlo, Abercrombie, Gap, Kohl's, The North Face, Polo, Victoria's Secret, Volkswagen, Adidas, Puma. I mean, I could go on and on. I'll share a link to the list with you in show notes, and I'll also share it on Instagram this week because I think it's really important that we all know this. Anyway, I think this long list means that at least some of these businesses are trying to kill these stories because... We're talking about some major business and financial power here. Remember, a lot of these brands are part of much larger companies, which are utilizing the same supply chain for all of their brands. So this problem is huge. It's not a good look for anyone. And I think that that may be one of the reasons we're not seeing that much coverage of it. Once again, this is all speculation. I also want to add here, though, when we're talking about the brands that are using... Uyghur labor, that the actual list of brands that are unknowingly using it might be significantly longer because Xinjiang is a key producer of the world's cotton. In fact, Xinjiang produces 85% of China's cotton and 20% of the entire world's cotton supply. This cotton finds its way into production across all Asian countries, where it is then imported in the form of finished clothing into all of the Western countries. And in 2018 alone, some investigations indicated that 570,000 individuals 
were forced to farm and pick cotton in Xinjiang. And it wasn't just Uyghurs. It was basically like the government can come in and force anyone of working age to go to the fields to pick cotton on demand. And they will put children in daycare and elderly people in sort of like day programs in order to send everyone who's able-bodied out to pick cotton. But regardless, people being forced to pick cotton, right? Now, I'm talking a lot about Xinjiang. Put a pin in that because there's a reason why I keep talking about that, okay? We're going to get to it in about two sentences, maybe three, okay? So first off, who are the Uyghurs? Well, the Uyghurs are a mostly Muslim Turkic ethnic group who regard themselves as culturally and ethnically close to Central Asian nations. There are about 11 million of them, and they primarily live in Xinjiang. Remember, I told you, I was going to tell you why I kept saying Xinjiang. Xinjiang is currently designated an autonomous region within China, much like Tibet. But in reality, that province has very little autonomy. Since the 90s, the Chinese government has been gradually eroding the rights and independence of the Uyghurs. For example, university students in Xinjiang told the BBC in 2014 that they were being banned from fasting during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. And reports from the region say that Uyghur local government officials have also been banned from fasting or attending mosques. In 2017, President Xi Jinping issued a directive that, quote, religions in China must be Chinese in orientation and, quote, adapt themselves to socialist society. This directive led to a fresh and pretty brutal crackdown on religious practices that particularly affected the Uyghurs. According to the BBC, Xinjiang, where most of the Uyghurs live, is now, it's sort of like covered by a massive network of surveillance, including police, checkpoints, and cameras. And these cameras scan everything from number plates on cars to individual faces. It's like an Orwellian nightmare, right? Last spring, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, the ASPI, released a report called Uyghurs for Sale, and it's the most comprehensive view of what's happening in China right now. I'm going to share a link to the full report in the show notes because I think it's definitely worth digging into on your own because knowledge is power. And the more we know about this, the more we can spread the word and leverage media, business, and our government to do something about it. And please, please go read the whole report because it's very disturbing. I'm going to actually read some stuff directly from the report because there's no way that I could say it better. So here, most of what I'm going to be saying for the next minute or two is directly from the report. Since 2017, more than a million Uyghurs and members of other Turkic Muslim minorities have disappeared into a vast network of what the Chinese are calling re-education camps in the far west region of Xinjiang in what experts call a systematic government-led program of cultural genocide. Inside the camps, detainees are subjected to political indoctrination, they're forced to renounce their religion and culture, and in some instances, reportedly subjected to torture. 
The re-education campaign appears to be entering a new phase as government officials now claim that all trainees have, quote, graduated. There's mounting evidence that many Uyghurs are being forced to work in factories within Xinjiang. This report reveals that Chinese factories outside Xinjiang are also sourcing Uyghur workers under a revived, exploitive, government-led labor transfer scheme. Some factories appear to be using Uyghur workers sent directly from these re-education camps. So basically, at some point, the Chinese government realized the financial value of all of their free labor, and they want to make the most of it while also crushing their religious freedom, right? As a reminder, free labor, forced labor, unpaid labor, it's all slavery. The ASPI has identified 27 factories in nine Chinese provinces that are using Uyghur labor transferred from Xinjiang since 2017. Those factories claim to be part of the supply chain of 82 well-known global brands. And the ASPI did the work to sort of follow the paper trail and see if that was true. So this is not mere speculation. The ASPI estimated that between 2017 and 2019, at least 80,000 Uyghurs were transferred out of Xinjiang and assigned to factories through labor transfer programs under a central government policy known as Xinjiang Aid. Chinese state media claims that participation in labor transfer programs is voluntary, and Chinese officials have denied any commercial use of forced labor from Xinjiang. But the evidence definitely indicates otherwise. So what's life like for Uyghurs who have been moved against their will out of Xinjiang to work elsewhere across the country? Well, they're referred to as surplus labor or poverty-stricken labor, and they are often transported across China in special segregated trains. Uyghur workers lead a harsh, segregated life, meaning they're separated from one another and from their co-workers in these factories under so-called military-style management. When they aren't working at the factory or in the fields, they attend factory-organized Mandarin language classes, they participate in, quote, patriotic education, and they are definitely not allowed to practice their religion. Every 50 Uyghur workers are assigned one government minder, and they are monitored by dedicated security personnel. They have very little freedom of movement, and they live in carefully guarded dormitories. They are completely cut off from their families and friends back in Xinjiang, where they may have been born and raised. The Chinese authorities and factory bosses manage the Uyghur workers by tracking them both physically with these minders, right, and electronically, there is a massive database for all of this information that's being maintained by the Chinese government, and it gives all the details of each of these people. You know, as I was working on this, I I had to take a break as I was writing the script because it just it just moved me to tears thinking about. I mean, here in the U.S. We have people breaking quarantine 
traveling, exposing themselves and others to COVID just because they miss their friends, family, and freedom so much. Imagine not having that option at all. I've read a few articles where Uyghurs who have managed to escape China, there are a few of them, they describe these conditions, the constant fear of being sent back to the re-education camps or worse. They talk about the sadness and sadness being just like not even strong enough noun of being separated permanently from their own children, their spouses, their parents, all of their loved ones. And it just, it just kills me in a year where I haven't seen my family and friends in more than a year. It, it gets to me, you know? So what can we do here? Because this is a big thing, right? Like it, it, it's one of those things that we've talked about this in previous episodes where when a problem seems so big, you had, you kind of have to like desensitize yourself to it because otherwise you'll be overwhelmed by how you feel powerless. Well, you do have power here. Okay. For one, we need to tell everyone we know about this because as Helen mentioned, this is just like not getting very much media coverage. And next we need to reach out to elected officials via Twitter, email, paper letters, and the good old-fashioned telephone. Because we need our government, in association with the UN, to enforce some repercussions here. Now, I'm going to tell you, despite some of my radical ideas, I'm also very pragmatic. This is going to be a tough route because the world is, for lack of a better term, afraid of China both of their economic power and their, you know, sheer size. It's hard to hold a country that is sometimes referred to as the world's factory accountable for things. You know, it puts so many other things at risk. But as I always say, your money is as powerful as your vote. So I think there's another way to make change here that will be more effective or at least faster That doesn't mean you shouldn't reach out to your elected officials. You need to do both. You're at home right now anyway. There's not very much good stuff on Netflix right now. This is a good time. So there's a twofold approach toward the companies that utilize Uyghur labor, unknowingly or otherwise. First, stop buying stuff from, say, Nike, a company that has for decades actually paid poverty wages to the people of color making their shoes and clothing, all while using the fight for racial justice in the U.S. as a marketing story. It infuriates me. Like they're literally patting themselves on the back for being so woke while all of this is happening behind the scenes. Side note, another company that has repeatedly congratulated themselves for being woke, thoughtful, engaged in social justice is Apple. And I just read an article about how they knew that one of their manufacturing partners was using child labor, but waited three years to separate themselves from that supplier. Now, I know business is complicated, but three years is a long time. As Helen said, these two situations are not unique. In fact, many companies in many industries are exploiting people of color every day, all while proclaiming on Twitter that they stand in support of Black Lives Matter. Well, that's a contradiction when you get down to it. It's so cosmetic, this like faux activism, and it makes me mad. It should make you mad too. 
But that brings me to the second half of this approach. We have to reach out to brands to tell them how we feel about this. For example, you could tweet Nike or Zara or Gap and say something like, hey, it's shameful that a brand like yours benefits from the forced labor of the Uyghurs. I won't be buying anything until you change this. Or write a good old-fashioned letter. I mean, it's great because you can also support the USPS while, you know, doing some activism over here. You could send a letter to the CEO of Nike. His name is John Donahoe. And by the way, the address is 1 Bowerman Drive, Beaverton, Oregon, 97005. The same goes for the CEOs of Inditex. That's the parent company of Zara, H&M, Gap, and so on. The mailing addresses and names of CEOs can be found very easily via a quick Google search because they are all publicly traded companies. Write them a letter. Seriously, in 2021, an actual paper letter in your hand is so powerful because it's such a rarity and it shows your commitment to making this change. The way I look at everything is like this. 2020 was the year we started to open our eyes. We learned about all the ways in which things are going wrong. And 2021 is the year that we collectively take action to change it. This year, I'm really focused on not only giving you the information, but suggesting next steps, showing you how you, just you alone even, can make a difference, even on an individual level, because that's how much power we have as consumers, as voters, as people with passion and determination and intelligence. Okay, do you hear that totally imaginary but super important sound? It's the closed horse hotline ringing, and it's a call from Carrie to tell us all about volunteering at FabScrap. Hi, Amanda. It's Carrie. I just finished listening to episode 43 of the podcast and your conversation with Jessica, the founder of FabScrap. I've volunteered at FabScrap um, in Brooklyn a few times, and I thought you might like to hear what that experience is like. So FabScrap, um, the warehouse, is located at the Brooklyn Army Terminal, an industrial complex that sits at the edge of a bay. You take an elevator up to the sixth floor and enter a large room where volunteers sort through pre-consumer waste from fashion companies. This room is probably three-quarters filled with a mound of garbage bags that nearly reaches the ceiling. The volunteers work at tables that are about eight feet apart, and each workstation has two large cardboard boxes that are waiting to be sorted when you come in. The boxes contain materials that come from the garment development and manufacturing process. Your job as a sorter is to separate swatches from anything that isn't fabric, so removing all the staples, notes, tags, hooks, and sheet protectors, and sort the fabric by type. Surrounding your workstation are different bins for 100% cotton, 100% polyester, 100% wool, poly blends, and fabric with elastane or any kind of stretch. When a bin is full, you weigh it and enter the information, the fabric type, weight, and manufacturer into a database. All of the small scraps that do not contain elastane are shredded to create a fabric filler called shoddy, which is used for insulation and other products. Unfortunately, I've learned that stretch fabric with elastane cannot be shredded, so there are fewer recycling options for that material. 
and in my experience, most of the fabric that I've sorted has some elastane in it. There are separate bins for pieces of fabric that are large enough to resell, and you're also instructed to separate special fabrics, lace, leather, faux leather, and anything sequined or embellished. Those fabrics are sold online and at the Fab Scrap retail shop. So a morning volunteer session runs from 10 to 1 p.m., and you would think that you could get a lot of sorting done in three hours. It can actually take that entire time to get through just one of the boxes at your station and possibly not even finish that. You have to read all of the sample tags to find the fiber content, and removing staples or hooks that can't go through the shredder is slow and tedious. But if you are a kind of person, someone who loves textiles and loves sorting and organizing things, it is an incredibly satisfying and meditative activity. The boxes contain fascinating things, too. There are fabric swatches in every color available, plaid, stripes, and animal prints in every weight and fiber type. You get a new idea every minute just shifting through these materials, and it's just blissful to feel flooded with inspiration. You want to start taking everything home. Um, the scraps just feel precious. The other interesting thing that's sorting through boxes um, at Fab Scrap is that it's like being an archaeologist of recent fashion trends in the making. There are a few printouts of emails between a buyer in New York and the manufacturer in China. They specify which colors or washes are approved and which ones are rejected or require revision. There isn't time to read much, but you do get a sense of the global nature of the business and all of the steps, specs, and people involved in getting that next wave of garments on our backs. When I last volunteered, I went through a box of denim samples from a major brand, and it started to give me an idea of how jeans are made. I learned even more from your conversations with Michelle, which were fantastic. One question surfaced in my mind as I started uh, sorting through hundreds of denim samples, um, which were just from one season, and that was, why is this brand constantly reinventing their denim collection? I mean, presumably they've made season, they've made jeans in previous seasons, so why can't they just keep offering the same ones for a while? And how is the consumer supposed to keep up with all this newness? So that's another feeling that you get when volunteering at Fab Scrap. You, you feel overwhelmed by the sheer amount of waste produced by the industry before a finished garment is even shipped from the factory. It doesn't seem like three hours of manual labor that you've just completed has done anything in the face of the large volume of material heading to landfills. And on some level, that's true. On the other hand, I think the process of sorting and collecting data is extremely valuable um, it's an extremely valuable step in making this information visible to companies that are producing it and to the industry in general. I'd really love to learn more about the potential uses for this data in terms of rethinking manufacturing or shaping environmental policy, and maybe that's coming up in future episodes. And personally, the volunteering sessions have had a huge impact on my psyche as a consumer and a creative person. It's quite the journey to go from seeing everything in those garbage bags as potentially precious to feeling overwhelmed and knowing that I just don't have the capacity on any level to engage with all of it. I really want it all, and then I really wish it didn't exist. Volunteering at FabScrap has helped me see things about the fashion industry that were previously invisible to me, and your podcast has had the same effect. I love hearing you and your guests dissect all of the byproducts of this hyper-consumeristic age that we're living in. So please take care of your voice, because I am buckled in for more. Bye.
Wow. Thank you so much for sharing, Carrie. I honestly, I had no idea what the experience would be like volunteering. And it's so fascinating and so organized. It's, I mean, Jess and her team should be really proud. (laughs) And everyone who volunteers there. I mean, you're doing some incredible work. I hope that the second half of today's conversation will answer some of Carrie's questions. I will say this. To her question, why do denim brands essentially try to reinvent the wheel every year, even though they totally don't have to, and it's super wasteful? (laughs) Well, honestly, because I think that fast fashion has changed the way all clothing brands operate, including the denim brands, because they think that they need to be, you know, like Forever 21 or ASOS, they need to be constantly introducing newness to us. I mean, literally every day, maybe even every hour, or we'll just get bored and go somewhere else for something new and exciting, which is laughable in jeans, right? Because how much can they really change in just a few months or even year to year? I mean, it's been skinny jeans for like how long now? (laughs) I agree that it's totally wasteful and not just a waste of fabric and resources, but it's also just a waste of creative people's time and talent. My hope, and I still believe this, is that 2020 may function as somewhat of a reset where brands will realize that they don't constantly have to be creating something, quote, new, and that slow and intentional development will lead to the most successful ideas. Because we, the customers, don't actually need constant newness. They're sort of underestimating us. We have a longer attention span, and we're smarter than they're giving us credit for. We see that these brand new jean collections look just like the last one, right? (laughs) If you, yes, you have a comment, a question, a story, an idea, a thought, please call the Clothes Horse Hotline. It's fun. It's easy. It's actually a voicemail. The phone number is 717-925-7417. And here's a pro tip. You will be cut off about uh, two and a half minutes into your message. So just call back and I'll use the magic of technology to blend it all into one message, which I did with Carrie's today. Well, Carrie's call is the perfect segue to get back into the conversation with Jess. So here we go. Oh, we could talk about trash for days. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of trash, you and I started talking, and we've talked already about fiber to fiber, but you and Mm -hmm. I both have a major pet peeve that I just wanted us to talk about, which is this idea of, quote, recycled clothing made of recycled bottles. Uh, And I know (laughs) I can really go off on this too. And I'm going to tell you that this is probably one of the top 10 things that people reach out to me about. Uh, really? Yes. yes. Sp- because the recycled clothing that we tend to see out there, well, okay, there are two things that people reach out to me about related to recycling. One are these places like Everyday World that says that they are re- recycling pre-consumer cotton, which I've already talked to some experts in that area who are like, no, they are picking off the extra sort of like fluff off the floor and running it through the machine, which is what every single mill does anyway, because this is all about trying to make every cent off of a very low margin business. So that's a scam already. I've already debunked that one. 
But, <laughs> but the I this is a brand everyone loves. I'm just gonna bring it up. Girlfriend Collective and their mm-hmm. recycled polyester leggings. They're not the only ones doing it. There's tons of other people doing this. I think even H&M has. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, when we start talking about this on the phone before, we were both getting really riled up because I feel like it's really, yeah. it's really tricky, right? Because it's, it is, it's, 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 a, it's a scam. I mean, and it yeah. tricks customers into thinking that they can buy more and more of these leggings. Right. So why don't you explain why this really riles us up? <laughs> Okay. Um, I mean, we, we touched on greenwashing and I think this is, this is a really like prime example of that. And we've talked about how like no one should have to know everything. I don't necessarily think that consumers should need to know this is greenwashing. I think that's the responsibility of the company to do better in discussing this issue. Mm -hmm. So put that out there first. Um, so I I have a pair, I will say. <laughs> when they first came out, I was working at sanitation. I was so excited to see recycled clothing of any kind. Um, and so I bought a pair. I was very excited. I also had um, a bag that I really loved. And the lining, it said, the lining of this bag is made from four plastic bottles, which I thought was great. Yeah, that sounds lovely, right? Um <laughs> Yes. In theory, yes. Um, As I've worked more and more in textile waste, it's become really frustrating that there is no fiber to fiber recycling options. We're seeing some companies like Evernew who can do cotton and they're working on making that back into a fiber that's cotton-like. There's some that can do poly cotton blends, um, but there's really not a holistic recycling in the true sense of material back into a like material that's happening for textiles. So because that doesn't exist right now, when you see recycled fabric, it's likely that it's recycled from something that was not fabric before, Mm -hmm. meaning we're, we're pulling from other waste streams. And so pulling from plastic bottles is an example. And the reason that's frustrating is because we have a way to recycle plastic bottles back into plastic bottles. Why are we taking material out of that process, doing something totally different to it that I think reduces its utility um, because once it becomes the legging fabric cannot become anything past that. That's really the only time it will get recycled. And it means that there's little to no investment or attention being paid to the massive amounts of clothing waste that need to be turned back into clothing. There's little investment happening there. So that's the first thing is just the source is frustrating because I've worked in textile waste for so long. The next piece, like I said, is like it can only really be recycled once. And then I don't think we're thinking about what we're wearing as plastic, but every time you wash it, it's shedding microplastics. And so that's where you see these huge stories about microplastics in the oceans and in our waterways. It's to the point now where there are studies where even newborn babies have trace amounts of plastics in their stomachs because of what the mom is eating, drinking, wearing, mm-hmm. um, showering in. And so, yeah, I the plastic issue is like a larger issue across all product categories, but particularly here where there's so much needed in terms of fabric end of life to be pulling from a waste stream that is a little bit more efficiently being handled, just like really um, 
clearly I get passionate about it. Yeah, no, I agree. And once again, it makes people feel like they can buy more of these, you know? Yeah. It's, and it's just a bummer. I mean, so that was that was ultimately really frustrating for me of I don't think that this is the best use of these materials. I think the other big myth then as as I started to like be more open about my feelings about <laughs> these plastic bottle fabrics, um, I started to hear that as we've been talking about reverse logistics are super complicated, taking back used bottles and removing labels, sanitizing, washing them is very costly and time intensive and labor intensive. And so in some cases, it's a lot easier to make this fabric from new bottles, from taking bottles, melting them down into pellets, and then making them into leggings. And so we think, and the and the biggest greenwashing myth is that this plastic bottle that I'm drinking and putting in my bin will eventually go to a recycler where it's washed, cleaned, and potentially could become the pair of leggings I buy next week. Mm -hmm. And it's really, it's not the case. We're kind of extracting virgin resources. And because it's now marketable to be recycled, that plastic is likely skipping the step of the bottle and the use and could be going directly into the leggings, but being claimed it's recycled. That doesn't surprise me at all because I know the big expense of recycling is like cleaning and sorting, uh, just like all of these other things. And so why would – and of course, why would anybody be recycling a drinking – like a bottle of water to make a pair of leggings? I mean, of course they're not, right? <laughs> why would we expect something that I mean, nice? <laughs> I would. I would hope that like in some cases there's some companies that are doing their due diligence in this. And so like – I, I would hope that maybe – I know it's possible. Like it is possible. But the question is not whether or not it's possible. The question when you become a company the size of Girlfriend Collective is, is it profitable mm -hmm. to do it that mm -hmm. way? And so possible versus profitable is where we, I think, lose some integrity. Yeah. I mean, I think that nails it right there. That's why we are sending perfectly good backpacks to the landfill because it's mm -hmm. less profitable to pay someone to put it away. And I think mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that's like a whole, like, how do we change capitalism kind of, kind of scenario. It's like no big deal. Guys. On the next yeah. episode, we'll, we'll take down capitalism. <laughs> but I do think, you know, I also say like, I don't know anyone who works at Girlfriend Collective. I don't know what's going on there behind the scenes, but there is a very big chance that they don't know for certain what the deal is with their fabric mm -hmm. because like the, the lack of transparency in the entire industry begins in the fabric mill. Actually, if it's cotton, mm -hmm. it begins on the farm where the cotton is being grown because we've heard about so much forced labor with the Uyghurs in China and that touching so many brands across the industry who I don't think knew that that was happening. You know, that – so mm -hmm. it's just, uh, just yeah. such a mess. I totally agree. I think like I – because I'm a millennial, maybe want and expect brands to like look through their supply chain and ask questions and make some moves towards transparency. But I agree. I don't, I don't want all of the blame to be on Girlfriend Collective because if they're told that this is recycled polyester and it seems very innovative and the fabric works for what they have in mind and it's marketable, like I, I can understand having like now run a small business. I, I see in that path where you stop asking questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
because there's only so much that you can pay attention to. There's only so much that you can know. And so I think you're right. That's where there needs to be more clarity and and a lot more transparency from the fabric creators and mills themselves mm-hmm. and their sources and, and what's happening there. And so the the blinders along the whole supply chain, I think, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to fix that. Yeah, though. no, me, me neither. Me neither. I mean, I, it's like, once again, we just have to fix all of capitalism, like really quickly, but like globally. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it is something, you know what, like, I do believe you're, if you're a huge fan of Girlfriend Collective Leggings, which like, I swear I'm like the only person who isn't. Um, and if you are a big fan, then ask them, keep asking them, mm-hmm. and then that's going to force them to figure it out. Right. They're one of those smaller brands that could a little bit more easily pivot or they're a little bit more agile in how they make changes and make decisions and what they can share. I don't think they're like a publicly traded mm-hmm. company yet. Right. And so, yeah, if I think if you're a fan of something and you want to know more, that's the best way to get involved and ask and make changes. Totally, totally. And once again, I'm going to tell you, having my last job being for a big corporation, the big corporations are watching Girlfriend Collective. Mm-hmm. They're obsessed with Girlfriend Collective and how they can like bottle what they have. So if we get Girlfriend Collective to be on the up and up with their recycled fabrics, the industry can follow because they'll sort of be forced to. Totally. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully this like pushes there to be more fiber to fiber recycling. And so if Girlfriend Collective wants to take back their leggings and recycle them into a fabric that could become leggings again and actually close a loop. Like hopefully then there's attention and there's resources and there's investment in that process, not just in diverting plastic bottles into this fabric, but actually being able to like become a little bit more circular. You know, when you and I were talking about the plastic bottles and the leggings, like, and the brand new plastic bottles before, it made me think of how, I don't know if this is in the late eighties or the early nineties, but Before then, McDonald's put a lot of their food in styrofoam and like a lot of fast food chains did. And suddenly it was like, hey, did you know that styrofoam is really bad for the planet? And McDonald's started doing this thing where they would be like, look, we made all these benches out of styrofoam containers. I don't know if you remember (laughs) this phenomenon, but they would be like, look at this bench. It's made from 500 styrofoam containers. And I – the time was like, wow, that's really impressive. But as now as an, as an adult and like learning a lot more about recycling, contamination, that kind of stuff, I can look back and I can say there is no way that those benches were made out of post-consumer styrofoam. Oh my God, no. Imagine the like oh, ketchup and – Yeah, and like, like the le- shredded and lettuce. Yeah, there's like no way. Like those were 100% like the truck left the styrofoam container factory, drove down the road, and they melted it back down into pellets and turned it into the bench. Like there was no way. <laughs> you know what's so funny is that like um, this is also to speak to like how an industry can change if there's a little bit more collaboration and resource sharing and how like once the movement towards something better starts, like it, more people are willing to get on involved. There's definitely a bandwagon effect of that when they were going through the styrofoam ban, um, McDonald's was using a different paper cup than Starbucks was using. And that became really, really hard for recyclers mm. because those those two companies contribute like probably the majority of all paper oh, cups for sure. go, going to the trash. And so it really took like a organized effort 
to say, if you guys want your cups to be recyclable and that's part of like your company ethos, then you have to work together to use the same paper so that it can actually be processed end of life. And that was like at the time, super innovative. And so I think it's even just that examination. I wonder what it took for McDonald's to realize that like the paper wrapper works just as well and it's probably cheaper for them than the styrofoam was. I know. Isn't that funny to think about? Because there's no way that styrofoam was cheaper than paper, right? Yeah. And then having to like work sometimes with your competitors for the good of the whole industry to be like, we will we will conform to this type of material so that all of us can recycle. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I can understand the work that that takes, but it shouldn't be so hard. <laughs> no, totally not. But like if, if the fast food industry could pull it off, they all can, right? Fashion can. Like, if McDonald's fashion. can do it, fashion can. It's right, right. That's like going to be my new motto. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's talk about Fab Scrap because like a little bit more because it's really cool and you're dealing with a lot of crazy stuff. What made you start Fab Scrap? It actually kind of started while I was at sanitation. Um, I was overseeing the city's clothing recycling program, and brands started to reach out to me or reach out to the Department of Sanitation to see if they could use that program for their excess fabrics. And at the time, I was so excited. I was like, could you imagine a Marc Jacobs Sanitation Housing Works collaboration and how beautiful that press would be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was I was really excited about it. And um, as I started to hear from more and more brands, I pulled all of them into a working group and was like, I for me to kind of make this work and understand how it would flow into our post-consumer system, I need to know what are you throwing away? What form is it in? Like, is it scraps or headers or mutilated garments or rolls? How often, mm-hmm. how often are you throwing that away? And what's the volume? Um, and so there were about 30 brands in that initial working group. Um, side note, all women, which I think is interesting. That <laughs> um, I think women kind of take the lead in sustainability in a lot of cases. I agree. I why is that? I don't I don't know. Every time that I see reasons, they feel a little sexist to me, like, oh well, women are just more nurturing and think more about the future. And I'm like, <laughs> that's that can't be it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not mad that women are taking the lead here, but it is true. Yeah. That everybody I talk to, right. except for when I was when I was working with Looped Works, like that was run by a man. But mm-hmm. in general, the people that I would encounter across the industry were women. Yeah. My office at Sanitation was the Bureau of Recycling and Sustainability was like 80% women. Wow. Um, interesting. Not true for the rest of the department. Like the uniforms right. side doesn't have as many women working in it. But yeah, very non-competitively too, this like group of 30 women, not always acting as official representatives of their brand, but very non-competitively to their credit, shared a lot of information and resources. And well, we tried this and this doesn't work because it's proprietary or they can't take this one part of the waste stream. They'll only take roles. And so hearing from about 30 brands like that this was an issue and um, that it didn't really fit into any existing nonprofit infrastructure. And then later finding out sanitation couldn't be involved because like we've discussed, it's commercial waste. It's not curbside residential waste. So sanitation doesn't touch it. I realized this isn't going to work within the city and within that existing program. 
And so um, I took this collection and new little thrift idea that I had for all of this raw material that needed to be collected and redistributed. And I pitched it on a television show like a true millennial. Um, Wow. (laughs) And so it was um, Project Runway Fashion Startup. Um, Project Runway was like trying to do a Shark Tank spinoff. Um, (laughs) Only lasted one season. Um, But I pitched this idea that I had for a way to collect all of this excess, redistribute and resell what we could and recycle the difference and let brands know all of the data behind all of it, providing a great resource for students and artists in the city, helping companies quantify their diversion and their CO2 savings. And three of the four panelists made investments, um, encouraged me to go nonprofit. And so that investment money really became like the seed donations that allowed me to get started. And so five years later, where we're at now, we provide reusable laundry bags to brands. They all have barcodes on them. They fill those bags with anything from the design process that they don't want and call us for pickup. We pick up the bags. When we scan the bags, we know where they came from, weigh everything, um, sort everything, Small pieces get shredded and become insulation, carpet padding, mattress stuffing. Large reusable stuff ends up in our online store or our thrift store. Um, We let volunteers take home five pounds of fabric for free and we give away a lot of material. So yeah, at this point, we're 500 brands in. We've had 6,000 people come and volunteer and we've saved over 600,000 pounds of material from landfill. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Thanks. It grew super fast, um, which I attribute less to like my skill as an entrepreneur and more to (laughs) how pervasive this problem was in the industry. Like when someone who works in fashion hears it, they're like, oh, thank God I've been hoarding this under my desk or I've been trying to send this to my kid's school and they won't take it. And so I I think the reason it's grown so quickly is because of the industry's internal recognition of it as a problem. And because there really wasn't a way to get this material at like thrift store rates and redistributed in an organized and convenient way. Do you think you're going to expand to other cities? Because I immediately thought of LA Mm -hmm. and how there has to be epic amounts of fabric waste there too. Yeah. And LA is a totally different animal because so much more production happens there. Mm -hmm, New New mm -hmm. York is very like design focused, but a lot of production happens in LA. And yeah, we in 2019 had been fundraising for an LA expansion in January of 2020. We were actually in LA looking at warehouse space. I was tentatively interviewing, um, definitely meeting with brands and talking to them about what our capabilities were and COVID came. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I do feel somewhat thankful that we hadn't gotten further and like signed leases and been trying to like make two coasts happen when we couldn't travel and everybody was working from home. But, um, it's definitely still the plan. I'm hoping that we can return to that when our own operations in New York recover a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Thankfully, we we have been able to not only pivot to online while we were closed, but also keep our community engaged because we hosted weekly workshops where you could order material from our online store and then someone from our community would show you how to 
um, change a pattern or make a wall hanging or um, a macrame plant hanger. (laughs) So (laughs) all these different things that you could do um, with upcycled material. And we found a way to share that digitally. So we were able to weather and we're we're on the ups, um, but I think it'll be we'll have to start fundraising again for LA. But that's definitely the plan. And past LA, I'm hoping that we can franchise. What we're doing is is very replicable in cities where there are hubs of fashion companies and hubs of creators. And I would love for people who know those like local industries to take the lead on it. I, for instance cannot speak French, but I think this would work really well in Paris. Um, so mm-hmm, I would mm-hmm. love, I would love for this to franchise where there is the industry hubs and um, infrastructure and opportunity for it. That's amazing. So what kind of challenges do you face? Like in terms of what gets donated to you, what you can't work with yet? Like, you know, yeah. what are the problems, I guess? Um, <laughs> So it's less about what we can or can't take because I think for the most part, people are really understanding if or when we have to turn something away. So we've like very much limited any shoes, um, sample shoes, because like I mm-hmm. said, they're really hard to break down and don't fit into our fabric recycling processes. Mm-hmm. So that's one. I think the biggest hurdle is actually we are a nonprofit, but we work differently from most nonprofits in that we're not publicly funded. We don't rely on grants or donations to operate. We um, we work with brands on a fee-for-service model, meaning that when we provide the recycling service and pick up all of their unwanted material, there's a service fee associated with that. And that more closely mimics what they pay for paper or plastic recycling, what they pay for trash pickup, Mm -hmm. but it also holds them more accountable for internalizing the cost of this waste. And it means that the industry is funding the building of this infrastructure and not individuals. So the service fee is, is really integral to kind of how we set this up. And I think that's the hardest part is a brand will reach out to us and say, I want to donate all of these fabric scraps. And we say, we can help you recycle them. And we have to change that. We have to change <laughs> that verb because the only thing we accept for donation is rolls of material that we know we can resell. And that's what a true donation is, mm-hmm. is meaning that like it's providing value for the org. Otherwise, what we're doing is a recycling service and there's a fee associated with that for us to pick up the material, for us to shred and sort the material. And so that fee for service is definitely like a point of education that we have to work with brands on. And do you get pushback on that? Like they're calling, they're thinking they're going to just like get rid of this stuff. Just going to dump it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because I would assume a lot of people are calling you that with that in mind. Yeah. I mean, I would say a lot of brands start there. um, And I think it's that's part of like the education and ongoing communication and like um, work that we do with a brand to sign a service agreement and become sort of more formal partners. Eventually, I think we get there. There's always brands where bottom line is most important. They would rather landfill it because it's cheaper. But where mm-hmm. where we go with it is that you can't market that you landfilled this. 
But with Fab Scrap, you will get a report that shows exactly what was reused, what was recycled, your CO2 savings because this material was diverted from landfill. And we even go so far as to say, like, it's the equivalent of planting X number of trees. Like, here, here's your marketing piece. Oh, like, people here's, love that. Here's your Twitter <laughs> point. Um, so we try and frame it that way of, like, there's there's more in the in the business that you can take from this than just what it costs to do it. Right. Right. That's interesting. Um, I remember when we talked before, well, there are two things I remember. One was we talked about spandex, yeah. which it turns out is a problem. Well, do you want to, do you want to explain why? Yeah. So part of our sorting process is first we pull out anything that's reusable. And for us, that's any material that's one yard or more. Mm-hmm. But if you're familiar with sort of how brands sample fabrics or how mills send swatches, um, usually what we're getting from brands, like 75% of what we get are fabric headers and swatches, which are six by six cuts of fabric, usually stapled to some cardboard or some like marketing material. Oh, very familiar with them. <laughs> so <laughs> these like six by six inch squares, we just, we receive millions of these and there's it doesn't make sense to keep them all for the, for reuse and so that is what gets shredded to become the carpet padding insulation more downcycling than recycling um i'm hoping for fiber to fiber but for now downcycling and the problem is that while most blends are okay because it's the shredding just basically pulls things apart to their fiber level we can't shred leather and spandex because those things aren't fibers Leather is right. a skin. Spandex is like a rubber additive to a fiber. So it's spandex, mm-hmm. elastic, latex. That additional stretch will melt when you're trying to shred everything. Uh, that is chilling to me because going back to the thing with kids' pajamas, if they aren't flame retardant, like sprayed with it, they have to be made of a material like that. Oh. That actually does melt if exposed to heat or flame, just like, so it will like melt onto people. Horrible. I know it's really horrible. I truly just feel like we don't know enough about the clothing we wear every day. No, it's like a mystery. It's all shrouded in mystery. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't even know if people really think that like polyester is plastic. It's plastic you wear against your skin for most of your hours of your day. (laughs) So gross. I mean, that's why it makes you smelly yeah. or like clammy or just feel weird or itchy. I mean, it's 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 in everything too. Gosh, I've been like trying to find some sweaters like thrifting because we live in this very drafty old farmhouse and every sweater I pick up is is a polyester blend. And I'm like, oh, do I really want this? I don't know. It will make me feel sort of cozy. You know? And now more it, and more I'm seeing that same thing with spandex. I'm like, why does this <sighs> why does this wool need to have spandex blended? Like I don't understand. Like why? Well, I can, okay. So I can tell you about that. Okay. The reason that so many clothes have a spandex blend in them now, it I actually I use jeans as the prime example. Mm-hmm. There was a time that we might all remember when jeans weren't stretchy. Mm -hmm. I would say it was like 2000 or something like that, right? But with the rise of the skinny jean, the original skinny jeans did not have 
stretch in them, mm-hmm. but that made them impossible to sell to anyone. They were really uncomfortable and they would only fit certain people. So retailers began to put spandex in it and then more and more and more. Then they did the jeggings mm-hmm. and they were like basically leggings, right? And what they realized is that you could reduce your return rate mm-hmm. and fit more people by making everything stretchy because they learned that from jeans, that rigid denim would be like returned two, three, four times as often or just not bought at all because it was harder to fit more body types. So if you put spandex in things, you no longer even had to do numerical sizing. You could just do a small, medium, large, that kind of thing and still fit a wide range of people somewhat. Oh my gosh. I was just thinking about like how that allows you to be so much more lazy in your sizing or even in your cuts because there's give. (laughs) Totally. I mean, even just like Go to a place like I'm using Forever 21 as an example, but this is like industry-wide and you realize, oh, everything is alphabetical sizing. Some of it will only even come in three sizes. That is because everything is stretched to fit a wide range of people. Mm -hmm. Perhaps mediocrely, but it will fit. And one, they don't have to cut as many sizes, right? Okay. That makes sense. Two, they don't have to do as many fittings of it, which would involve making a new sample paying a, a fit model, paying, you know, a technician, uh, sending those notes, getting another sample, paying a fit model, paying the technician, just doing that over and over again. If it's stretchy, you can get pretty close and you may never have to fit it at all beyond someone in the buying office trying it on real quick, which I can say happens all the time. <laughs> so, wow. Oh my God. I mean, that makes so much more sense to me now. I'm like, why does everything have some stretch in it. And like as a caveat, I do think the shredding technology and like the the ops that we're using could probably handle some contamination percent, like maybe like 3% spandex and lower. It's just, we are definitely our shredders' mm-hmm. smallest client. We're sending 15 to 20,000 pounds every other month, but we're definitely the smallest client. And so we're sorting out even 1% spandex. Um, and it's just baffling the amount of material that now has spandex elements in it. So what do you do with all that spandex fabric then? So that is the only small scrap that we keep for reuse. Like any other small scraps, unless a volunteer wants to take them home, um, they'll go into the shredding process and become shoddy, um, which Interestingly, we also now sell online and at our warehouse because people are using it to like stuff pillows they made or stuff animals or ottomans. Mm. Um, But spandex scraps are the only scraps that we keep as scraps. And what we do is sort them by color. And part of this is so interesting too. I've learned sometimes that like waste becomes not waste once you make it pretty. And so we (laughs) we sort it by color and then we have these nice, really colorful blends with all these small pieces. And sometimes fashion students just need swatches or we have, um, we've worked with puppet makers who just need like little tiny pieces (laughs) of things because they're making small projects or artists Mm -hmm. or people learning to sew because it's not like it all feels like swimsuit material. Like I said, some of it is 1% stretch. So it's Mm -hmm. basically denim or wool. Um, And so we sell those as scrap packs. They are pay what you wish. And so we're essentially giving that away. And then that moves quite a bit more than I thought um, for creative small projects or swatching or whatever. 
in a bulk way, um, we've been working with boxing gyms because inside the middle of a punching bag is a sand core, but then around that sand core is fabric scraps. So we've been working with boxing gyms and it's not pure recycling or upcycling. It just extends the life of that material probably for another year, maybe two. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's not perfect. We definitely would prefer if people were like upcycling into things they plan to keep and use and wear, but it does, it does provide an outlet. Um, So yeah, it's, it's not perfect, which is why I always say like, if you can avoid spandex, that's a really important piece of sustainable fashion. Totally, totally. And once again, you can see now why it is so widespread. <laughs> yeah, that makes way more sense. Now. Yeah, it's so crazy. I mean, it was like insidious because I agree, it's really hard to go find, like, oh, I just want a t shirt. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, this t shirt has spandex in it. Why? It's, you know, right. it's, 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 ev- it's everything. It's so insane. And like, you know, the idea there is that also you can then wash it and it will return to its shape. But I will tell you this especially when we talk about spandex or spandex adjacent fibers, those garments when they're blended are most prone to pilling Mm -hmm. because the spandex itself has such like a high tension. It's like so strong. Mm -hmm. And if you mix it with cotton, it like blend it together. The fibers pull on one another because that spandex is just so sturdy that it breaks the cotton fiber and that's why you get pills. Wow. So it even even would – reduce the useful life because I know some people, as soon as it starts pilling, that would be when they donate or toss it. Totally. Yes. Um, yeah. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I mean, wow. I, in, in me now knowing that like spandex is not recyclable, I'm always looking for things that don't contain it. And the last time I bought jeans, which was like two years ago, um, <laughs> Levi's had a new option where you can specifically filter for jeans without spandex. And so mm-hmm. I have to believe that that comes from consumers asking or looking for it. Um, cause otherwise I, I have never seen that filter before. I mean, it's so smart because I think more and more people are realizing that like stretchy jeans don't last. Mm-hmm. You have to wash them all the time to get the shape back. Yeah. Or they do that weird thing they like bag out in your knees or in your butt and just. And now that you're saying that those are the jeans that have pilled for me the most are the ones that are super stretchy. I mean, when I learned about what really creates pills, it blew my mind <laughs> because <laughs> you would assume, I mean, and I can say this because one category I've bought a lot in my career has been sweaters and you know, no one, I don't even think in fashion school you learn about pilling, right? I didn't go to fashion school, so I definitely didn't have that background anyway. And I would be like, okay, why are these things pilling all the time? Why are people complaining about it? It must be because they're natural fibers. And oh. everyone around me would be like, yeah, I agree. Maybe alpaca, for example, is too delicate. We should shift into more blends. But it turns out it's the blends that are making the pills. And I I think that's – I mean, I, it's probably going to be a surprise to everyone who's listening. But Yeah, I had no idea. It was one of the most important things I've learned this year for sure. <laughs> Have you used um, – I've seen those little like shavers, those little like pill shaver machines. Do mm-hmm. those work? I'm always worried about like a further re- like ripping or reducing the fiber in some way. And I'm like, I think this is just going to lead to holes if I do this too much. 
I mean, I think in the long term, 100%, because what you're doing is shaving off broken fibers, exposing another layer to be broken. So it would just slowly, you would be like shaving away this whole garment. <laughs> uh, my last job before the pandemic was working for a company that was doing rental. So mm. not rent the runway, but that kind of idea. And we were finding all the sweaters were coming back in after one rental, totally pilly, while customers, you send them a pilly sweater and they're mad right mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. And so we were literally paying people to come in and shave sweaters all day. Oh my God. But for me, it was like, oh, like, what is this? Is this going to lead to us having to write this all out of our inventory in like two months when all that's left is like the tag? You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> like a cartoon where you like keep pulling the thread and then the sweater like disappears. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, but even then as a buyer, I was like, oh, well, I guess we just need to realize that for rental, like, we should focus on synthetics, which I will tell you is rent the runway strategy. Uh, I've heard this from tons of vendors. Rent the runway will literally go to vendors and be like, can we do this in a poly? Uh, wow. Can we change the fabric out? Because they're concerned about the delicateness of it. And yeah, in some ways we know poly will stand the test of time technically in the landfill. But from like a wearing and washing perspective, that's not always the case because it snags, it runs, it pills, especially if it's a blend. Um, and there's just like a lot of other wear issues with it. But I can see that a lot of companies are thinking that like, oh, this poly is cheap and it will be more durable and it's not really true. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's that that's eye-opening for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I actually used Rent the Runway for a few months, like trying to learn more about, you know, how it worked basically. And I was surprised how all the clothes I was getting were polyester where I was like – because it would come with like a recommended retail price and it would be a really nice brand. And I'd be like, oh, I'm wearing this $700 dress, but it's 100% polyester. Like where's the disconnect here? And then I learned from vendors that that's what they were doing. So not that I'm trying to deter people from Rent the Runway, but (laughs) it is polyester. I mean, it's so so hard now because really – there's faults in every option, you know? It is. Yeah. It's really, really hard. Nothing is perfect. And if you have less money or you're a larger size or maybe you're really tall or you're really short, you have even less options to begin with. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do you pick the best one? Yeah. You know, I've had people message me like, I'm a vintage seller and I have all these polyester clothes from the 70s. Should I like not sell them now? And I'm like, no, no, someone should wear them. Yeah, like, everything should get worn. It's okay. Like, it would just be nice if we maybe stopped making new polyester clothes. You know, right? I think that's like once you know better, like do better. But it's sort of like we. I think it's now becoming more common knowledge that like polyester has some problems, but that is not changing behavior. No, no. And I, well, I think it goes back to like there's only so much we as consumers can do because like if companies are going to continue to churn right. out polyester clothes. Right. That comment more for companies than for consumers. Yes. But- yes totally. <laughs> totally. And it sucks because it doesn't – it does a disservice to the customer, sure. right? Yeah. Like, like people are catching on about polyester, but then they go shopping and they're like, oh. like and that's all you see. Right. You're like, oh, I want to get some underwear. Oh, everything is poly now. You know, that's not even good for your privates. It's like, <laughs> it's, what, do, what do you do? And I, I think these are the questions I get a lot. Like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I, I think you just have to do your best. Right. Yeah. Um, my friend, Kate Black, um, is the author of Man- Magnifico, like eco, eco, um, mm-hmm. 
and I really like her take on it is that whatever resonates most with you, if that is the fiber type because of its origin, like is it organic and where it came from, or is it its fiber type because of end of life, or is it animal rights, or is it human rights, or is it the longevity of the construction? Like whatever resonates most with you, like shop on that line because very few things, if any, are going to like check every single box. Totally, totally. And just make your stuff last for as long as possible Mm -hmm. so you don't have to buy more of it. That's a big part of it too, I think. Yeah. So – we talked a little bit about how it would be easier for fiber to fiber to be like to actually happen if there were less blends. And you talked about RFID. Yeah. Let me explain that a little bit. This is like extremely technical, but I will say I'm familiar with RFID because if you've ever used a rental service like Rent the Runway, you might have seen the little tiny barcodes inside the clothes, and those are RFIDs. Mm-hmm. So. The way that RFID would play into end of life and recycling is that they can be made so small um, and so ingrained in even a fiber that a mill could put all of the information about the fiber, its origin, its um, composition and weave or its knit, its dye, um, into this barcode. And so when a brand receives the fabric, they could scan the barcode and verify all of the source information. Then technically, once they create their garment, the consumer could even scan that barcode and verify from start to finish where their material came from, potentially could even give the consumer some end-of-life options. Um, Then end-of-life in sorting if we could scan it and all of the other information maybe has worn off the tag and we don't know even who the brand is or the size, we could still see all of that information end of life and be able to make sorting decisions based on that. So mm-hmm. the the sci-fi version of RFID totally changes the information that we have about what we buy. The obstacle there is it means that it has to be adopted. A similar system has to be adopted throughout the supply chain. And I think that is such a huge lift Mm -hmm. from like, does that mean when the mill is buying cotton, that that has to be part of the equation? Does that mean whoever cut and sewed the shirt, is that part of the equation? And so Figuring out what parts are included in the information, how information can be changed or uploaded or added. There's so much blockchain and all of this, which I will say I do not, I understand in theory, but do not understand. <laughs> like, um, that's kind of one of those tech words that people throw out at conferences. And I'm like, oh, yeah, blockchain. But in reality, I think the integration and adoption of this from start to finish to make it really like usable along any part of the chain takes a lot. That I think requires like perhaps even government intervention where it's like not an option that this be adopted and it's more industry standard or it's policy to operate. And so I see so much potential in that. And I also just um, panic at the hurdles that have to be jumped to make it happen. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, 
I, I agree. And it's interesting because like, especially when you talk about fabric manufacturing, fabric mills and farms and like all of that, like fabric production, the one thing that I have also learned over the past couple of years that has just blown my mind is I think I thought everything was going to be a lot more like industrial and technological and like there'd be computers involved and all these things. And like fabric production especially is so not technological. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's pretty like fabric production has kind of been the same Mm -hmm. since fabric was first produced. I mean, obviously we do have like space age polymers and there are some companies who are investing into R&D to really like scientifically create fabric. But in general, most of the clothes we buy and that are made are not made with all this science involved. <laughs> right. Yeah. That that was really baffling to me too when I started to work more with the fashion industry through Fab Scrap is how much is still just done that way because that's how it's always oh, been done. I, There's so much tradition mm-hmm. in how clothing gets made and there's been very little evaluation (laughs) of those processes because they work. And so far they've been able to speed up or change in a way that still works for all the new demands, but there hasn't, I don't think there's been a real revolution in, in the way that clothing is produced in the way that has happened for other, other products. Even like I, I still think about, that everything that you wear is likely still cut and sewed by hand. I know. I know. That is what <laughs> always surprises people because you would assume at this point there would be some sort of like AI involved, right? Like robot machinery mm-hmm. or huge like – like I think probably before I actually had a job in this industry, I assumed that like they would put the roll of fabric in one end of this like assembly line and clothes would be spit out on the other because <laughs> – a lot of other stuff we buy is like that. Like think about like food. Manufactured food is very similarly just like yeah. put the ingredients in and at the end there's this long, complicated, well-oiled machine that at the end gives you a box of cornflakes. Like that's right. just not how clothes are. And it's, it is fascinating to me because I feel like the big changes we see like, oh, now all the clothes have spandex in. That wasn't some like huge initiative where everybody was like, okay, we're going to invest all this time and energy into research and development. And then we're going to make all these systemic changes. It just happened gradually because people saw that customers responded to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess that's what it is, is like the change happens so gradually and so piecemeal until it just becomes more like practice, but there's no real, like this changed industry, the industry. I mean, I, I can kind of see companies wanting to do that with like, well, now we're doing 3d pattern making or 3d fitting. So you, you can do things more digitally, but I haven't, again, haven't seen that adopted at scale Mm -mm. where that becomes the standard because then that would require that the, the, platform that you're using to make your pattern, then when you send that to a factory, they all have to have the same platform and be able to read the same files and be trained in what that means. And that that's a huge shift from mm-hmm. what's happening there right now. And that definitely also does not exist. And because the factory infrastructure itself is so – it's just – so opaque and mysterious like everything else you know mm-hmm. a lot of times who you think is making your stuff is not actually it's been subcontracted out and what's so sad about that and how so much is subcontracted and then 
when that happens and the brand may not even know worker safety goes out the window, any kind of like um, proper compensation or like workers' rights or human rights sometimes, it's just none of that is now part of the equation of the order. And people are taking cuts along the way, which means there's like not appropriate compensation. I just like, that's where things become so troubling. And so, yeah, A, the 3D tech is not going to be happening there, but like there's, then that's where it becomes the thing of like, this is where sustainability feels kind of privileged because there's so many deeper issues in the fashion Um, industry than like whether or not we can 3D pattern something, you know what I mean? And so that's where, when I'm saying the hurdles for something like that to, to happen first requires so many other changes that I think are more important in how clothing is produced at this scale. Totally. 100%. I guess I have some questions if I can like flip the interview for sure, a second. Yeah, the interview. <laughs> um, I would love to know like if there is anything that you miss about like working in fashion or that you felt like it did well. You know what I loved about it most is that one, although women in fashion don't always get to hold the leadership positions, and in fact, they rarely do, what you see is an industry that is primarily being run by women, at least mm-hmm. in the middle and lower level, and they are doing so much business. Like, I I think that from the outside, fashion looks like it's all glamour and fun and we're all trying on clothes. But what it really is is a whole bunch of women being really smart and strategic and doing a lot of math and negotiating and solving problems together. And I I think I miss that the most. I feel like it sucks that women aren't running the industry and that's a whole other issue because it's still it's still a really sexist industry at its core. But Mm-hmm. Everywhere I worked, the workforce was women, and we were doing just I mean, it was just clothes, I get it, but we were doing the amazing stuff every day and trying our hardest to make the best stuff for the world. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I it's funny you say like they they're not running fashion like at its face, but they are running the industry like from the inside. Oh, for sure. And one thing that I – everybody I talked to who's worked, like especially on the more corporate level in fashion, whether they were a designer, a buyer, a planner, whatever, is like, wow, I never knew that I'd have to get really good at like public speaking <laughs> and <laughs> negotiating cross-functionally and like just my own communication and w- understanding people and working towards a common goal. And I'm like, yeah, I mean like that is what fashion really is. And – I think it can be a really exciting career because you get in there and you're like, oh, I'm like a businesswoman. Yeah. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then my second question would be, what would you change first? Like, I know you like examine a different issue with every interview and I'm so waste driven and that's like my background, but what would you change first? Uh, This is a hard one for me. I I mean, but I think it would be about protecting workers and changing how mm-hmm. – and this is not just the fashion industry. I have to say that. But like I can speak about what I know, which is how labor and workers are treated and viewed in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just like this fundamental just like lack of empathy or consideration for the people who make our clothes, ship them from the warehouse, now probably collecting the returns somewhere – 
retail <laughs> workers. We need to redefine as an industry those people and like who they are. Like we need to like I think they're just faceless drones. Some people might even consider them unskilled labor and all of them are doing highly skilled work and they should yes. be paid well. We're not I and by well I'm not like let's give everybody $100,000 a year. That world doesn't need to exist. What we need to what needs to exist is that everybody has enough money to live a nice, healthy, happy, safe life, right? Yes. And yes. that doesn't exist right now because I think that we've othered all the people who make our clothes, ship the clothes, sell the clothes. And I, I hate that so much. You know, I come I come from a, a lower class background. I grew up around the people who work in the warehouse, who work in the stores. Most of the people in my family couldn't sew, but I can tell you if the garment industry were still here in the US, they would have been working in those factories too. And those people were just as smart and interesting and meaningful to the people around them as anyone working in the corporate office of any of the companies they work for. Sure. Yeah. And so- that to me is like when I look at the UN's like sustainable development goals, you know, half of them are related to lifting people out of poverty and giving them safe, healthy lives. And I, you know, and this is me being just very optimistic, but I feel like if we could solve those problems, the other things come alongside it. Like they're all so connected. Yes. Yeah. Well, and and that one of your favorite things was how empowering the fashion industry can be for women working inside of it. So many of those like skilled creators are women. I know like globally fashion is the largest employer of women mm -hmm. from top to bottom. And so how much more that would mean if we could actually be uplifting those women and giving them resources and investing in them long-term. Exactly. And you know, I think that there's this like very naive belief that if we started paying everyone a living wage, that the companies would go bankrupt. And I would argue mm -hmm. otherwise because people will have more money <laughs> to buy things and do other things in the world. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> I, I I totally agree. I mean, I definitely don't want to get like super political, but some of the things I've seen on Instagram about the billions made over the oh. course of the pandemic and how the billions made could give everybody stimulus checks and they'd still be richer than they were before the pandemic. I know. I know. <laughs> like, yeah, I agree. I think it's a total fallacy that proper wages would would somehow upturn the economy. And people spend that money right away. Like maybe, okay, maybe mm -hmm. you give them the paycheck on Wednesday and you don't get it back on Thursday, but I bet you'll get it back in a month in another way. And mm -hmm. I just think, once again, it's like, how do we reframe capitalism? Like capitalism is one of those things that on paper makes perfect sense, but and I think it was working to some extent for a long time, not for everyone, right? But Somewhere along the line, it got like really egregious. And I think maybe even like in our lifetimes, because we've seen how the millennials yeah. specifically are just not thriving, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. I I just, I can't fathom a billion dollars. <laughs> Me neither. Well, like, you couldn't spend it in your lifetime anyway. It'd be absurd. Right. And so like, why why does anyone need any one individual need a billion dollars. Like that, that's to me where I'm like, I just don't see how this is okay. <laughs> Not okay. And you see, I mean, I think the pandemic has been very terrible and so many people have lost loved ones and their way of life and their stability and their safety and people are going to have health problems after this. But if there is a silver lining to come from this, it's that we are now seeing in full daylight 
why all of these things were wrong. Why what was mm-hmm. broken? You know, mm-hmm. that like people are making billions of dollars while other people are in food lines right now. And even even in a more like micro sense of the fact that people can be as productive from home oh and giving them the opportunity to do you know what I mean? Giving them yeah. the opportunity to have that. And the fashion from like what I'm seeing has slowed down. We didn't see nearly a fashion week in September. I know <laughs> that we have in years past. And like we're all still okay. Like the world is still turning. And so like the deacceleration, and there's probably a better word than that. <laughs> I know mean, it was <laughs> slowing like, down, which would be the same word. <laughs> Yeah, like having things slow down and and giving that space to reevaluate, I think I think is so I think that was a, a silver lining as well. I think so too. You know, I had kind of reached this point. And I mean, I'm one of those people who's like, I've worked in fashion for a really long time. Fashion is not the most important thing in my life. Like I'm way more into like art and books and travel and all of those things. And so if I had to go look at clothes all day at work, I didn't want to go shopping after work. But mm-hmm. so you have to take that with a grain of salt. Because I've also worked with people who are like, yeah, of course I'm going to go shopping after work. I love looking at clothes and I'm like over it. But <laughs> I had reached this point a few years ago where I was like, I don't care about fashion anymore. I don't care about influencers. I don't care about looking at all the shows. I don't care about all the blogs that lovingly talk about this art form that has like stopped being artful. And mm-hmm. I just felt like it had reached some point that just – I don't know, like fashion began as like this creative expression of a basic need, which was clothing. It turned it into an art form. But then somewhere along the line, it had just become an industry and Mm -hmm. like a behemoth and just this like beast that was like, I don't know, enslaving people and making future garbage, right? And I just was kind of over it. I was like, I don't even care. I don't want to look at Vogue. I don't care anymore. Yeah. And I think we needed a reset to make it go back to its sort of roots, you know? Yeah, I it's funny the way that you describe it is like an art form of a basic need and I feel like so much of clothing because of either now how it's produced or just what it is or because it's gone too far into like in my non-fashion head what fashion is that it lost utility anyway. Mm-hmm. Like it, the mm-hmm. basic need is not being met. And that I think was like just like a general theme in like why the industry as a whole is like it's not meeting the basic needs of its workers. It's no longer meeting the basic needs of its consumers. So what is it doing? I know. It's, there was an, <laughs> I, I totally agree. There was an article that came out early in the pandemic, like in March or April when we all thought the pandemic was going to end soon. And it was like a New York Times article that literally 1,000 people sent me about sweatpants <laughs> or something. And it – what the thing in that article that struck me the most is they they did touch on the how fashion had sort of lost its grip on reality, meaning its utility. It would be like, now we're selling three quarter sleeve winter coats and open toed <laughs> knee high boots, and you're like, when do you wear these things? And I had been saying that for a while. I was like, it's become so absurd mm-hmm. that no practical person. I mean, just the fact that like women are encouraged to like hoard shoes that you couldn't walk a block in. Like yeah. this is just where we are right now. We gotta like turn turn it turn it off and turn it back on. <laughs> you know? Yeah, reset, <laughs> reset. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was so awesome to talk to you today. It was like the most fun I've had all week. 
I know. Uh, Thank you for having me. <laughs> I know. We'll have to have you back again because this was so great. Time. Uh, do you have any like closing thoughts or anything? And it's it's okay if you don't. But <laughs> um, I mean, we really traveled. We really did. We really did. We really touched on a lot. And it's so fun. This was so fun for me because it was a lot about the commercial side of things. Um, And so, yeah, I think the consumer shouldn't shoulder everything, but the consumer can feel so empowered that brands are listening. And so I think that was like a great takeaway that we were able to, to touch on. And yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't even really have anything to plug. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, if you haven't heard of Fab Scrap yet, we're going to have a link in the show notes. I highly recommend checking it out. So many makers I know are using Fab Scrap as a resource right now during the pandemic, which is awesome. I can't believe how many people I talk to are like, oh, I'm just waiting for my lining fabric to come from Fab Scrap. So <laughs> I love it. I love, I it. I, I love it. I still feel like such a a newbie to entrepreneurship and still like such a little trash nerd that anytime someone's like, Oh, I've heard of fab scrap. I am so thrilled. (laughs) So excited and thankful. Um, so yeah, I, I love that people are utilizing the resource and that it's, um, it, that it's becoming a more accessible option for sourcing. Yeah, I know because, you know, especially like plenty of people are going out to thrift stores and trying to get fabric that way, you know, their materials or whatever, but some people can't. Also, if you live in the city, good luck. You know? <laughs> so I think it's great that Fab Scrap is there. And I, when you were talking about the franchising this, I was just like, oh my God, there needs to be one in Portland and there needs to be one in Chicago. And I was getting like really excited. <laughs> so we're trying to figure out if there's even, even if we can't do the full model, but just like work with, um, work with some like local shops to even just accept fabric for recycling. So like home sewers have a place to bring their scraps. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. we're going to, if it's not full like service volunteer and fabric shop, we're still going to try and find ways to like touch more parts of the country. That's awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again to Jess for taking the time to talk to me. It was so fun and hopefully we'll be able to have her back on the show again for more trash talk, right? If you haven't already, you can learn more about FabScrap at fabscrap.org or on Instagram at fab underscore scrap. Go. You're going to learn so much about fabric. You're going to find a resource for fabric for your own projects. And I think it's going to make you think a lot about all the fabric that's kind of like floating around out there right now. I do have a couple more thoughts about recycled leggings and, of course, Girlfriend Collective. Like I said to Jess, every time I put something in stories about like, hey, what would you like to hear an episode about? Easily 20 people say Girlfriend Collective. I'm not going to do a whole episode about Girlfriend Collective, but I will talk about Girlfriend Collective a little bit more and the idea of recycled leggings and recycled fabrics as a whole, right? Jess is right in that there's like a psychological leap that allows us to think, it's okay if I drink water from disposable plastic bottles because they'll just be recycled into leggings or whatever. So you might, even though you don't know it, like kind of unconsciously, 
find yourself using more plastic bottles without thinking about it. And that's even in a scenario where we know for certain that fabric is being made from post-consumer bottles rather than never used bottles. Now, Girlfriend Collective, based on their website, seems very confident that they are using post-consumer bottles based on the suppliers they're using, which is great to hear. But remember that a lot of other brands may not be doing their due diligence on this. So ask questions. And my hope is that Girlfriend Collective is constantly asking questions of their suppliers as well. Regardless, though, of whether or not the leggings are made of post-consumer bottles, it's important to remember that even Girlfriend Collective leggings are made of a blend of recycled plastic and other fibers, which means, dun, 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 that they are not recyclable. Remember, as Jess said, we just haven't reached a point where blends of fabric are recyclable. And in fact, there's just like this infinite number of different blends out there. So it's not even like someone can create a process for recycling each of them individually because there's just too many. There's not a lot of regulation around that, except for in France, where now there's a very set number and type of blends that manufacturers can use in order to sell clothing in that country. And that's specifically not because they want to ruin the brand's good times, but so they can streamline fabric recycling when technology becomes available or at least improves, right? Now, that said, I think it's really important for us to talk about the process of turning plastic bottles into fabric because, well, spoiler here, there's a lot of energy and water involved. First, the bottles are shredded to sort contaminants out because these are already used, right? The shreds are packaged up to be shipped around the world to different plants for the next step. When they arrive at their next destination, the shreds are sent into like a bath. It's not like cute. There's not like bubbles and candles and stuff. Instead, it's where denser plastic from the bottle caps float to the top and are strained out. The shreds then, now we have just have some shreds, they're sent to the second bath. This one is a lot less fun and free-spirited because it's actually a bath of caustic chemicals that remove the residues from labeling, you know, the stickers, that kind of stuff. This step, it's important to call out, utilizes hazardous substances that are both bad for the planet and bad for people. After that, these shreds are put into huge dryers. See, I told you there was a lot of energy being used here, right? Then the shreds are forced through molds that melt them into threads. But oh, there's so much more. <laughs> these threads aren't strong enough on their own, so they are bound together in a heating and stretching process, consuming even more energy. And then it's all torn apart again. This tearing apart of all these threads creates a fluff that looks like cotton wool, but is 100% plastic. Another machine turns this into felt, and then this felt is turned into thread by machines, which feeds the thread onto the bobbins that feed a master loom, which weaves the sheets of polyester fabric. Now, of course, around this time would, would be when we would also be adding in other fibers for the blend, right? The fabric that you have there is white. So 
if what's being made out of it isn't white, well, then it needs to be dyed. And the thing is here with this plastic fabric, stronger, more caustic dyes have to be used because the plastic has been extremely processed and it's sort of, I don't know, it's less open to the dye process, if you will. So you got to go a little bit harder on it. This entire process sheds microplastics into the water from step to step to step and even into the air, which means it eventually lands on us, on crops, on the ground, it runs into the ocean. I mean, you know all the sad stories about microplastics. Microplastics, as you know, are finding their way into everything, including our bodies. You know, Katie of Salt Hats sent me an article a few weeks ago about how microplastics have been found in breast milk, which is terrifying, right? As a conscious consumer, what should you do here? Well, I'm not going to tell you to give up your girlfriend collective leggings. It seems as if, you know, they're made in factories that guarantee a living wage and good working conditions. So I want you to support a company that does things the right way, like Girlfriend Collective. And, you know, I get it. You need leggings to work out. You know, there's a reason why polyester is so popular in workout clothing, right? I get it. We've talked about that in our active wear episodes. So I get it. You need leggings. But this isn't a blank check to buy tons and tons of leggings. Because remember, there's no fabric, no material that allows us to buy tons and tons of clothes and rarely wear them, cast them aside, send them to the landfill, donate them to the thrift store. There's no get out of jail free card there. No matter what the clothes are made of, you need to make them last. So buy only what you need, make them last for as long as possible by caring for them carefully. Girlfriend Collective, for example, says that you should wash in cold water and line dry them. I totally agree. I would also recommend that you mitigate the microplastic shedding of the laundry process by investing in a guppy bag or those microplastic catching balls that you throw in the washing machine. Girlfriend Collective even sells a filter that you can add to your washing machine, although I've read that it can be a little challenging to install and I tried to wrap my brain around it and I was like, yep, not for me. And obviously it's not an option if you go to the laundromat anyway, but Guppy bag is, and I highly recommend it. It literally catches the microplastics and you just take them off like emptying the filter and throw them in the trash. You know what? Even these individual changes add up. And yes, we also need to get more businesses to care about doing things the right way. If they see us shifting all of our legging purchases to someone like Girlfriend Collective, they will notice and they will think about doing a better job themselves. But we can also ask Girlfriend Collective, hey, what's the end of life plan for these leggings? How should I dispose of them? Can I send them back to you for recycling? Are you working on a recycling plan? Because Girlfriend Collective seems very responsive and engaged. So let's get them to do even better because, as I've said, the bigger brands, you know, like Lululemon or Athleta are going to look at Girlfriend Collective. Trust me, they already are and say, hey, what's the secret to their success? We need to do the same thing. This is how these ideas spread. That doesn't mean that you also shouldn't be asking Lululemon and Athleta and anywhere else that you buy your leggings, hey, what's the deal with the fabric? Where do you get it? Oh, if it's recycled, like, 
can you confirm that it's made from post-consumer bottles? I mean, these are all things we need to be asking, right? How much do you pay your garment workers? You know, can you guarantee that? What are the working conditions? You know the list of questions. We talk about it all the time. Because that's what 2021 is all about, doing better for ourselves and getting brands to do better too. We can do this. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't I ask you every time? (laughs) And tell your friends, but like with a mask on and six feet apart, okay? (laughs) I also am just going to say I still have a few anti-brunch pins left. So if you leave a review this month, I'll send you a pin and a membership card. So one more, you know, kick in the butt to go do it. Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I love hearing from all of you and seeing your reposts. We had some really fun times this week, which is weird because it was a weird week. Uh, We were reminiscing about all the toys we loved as a kid, and it was kind of the highlight of my week. So if you're not following Clothes Horse on Instagram, well, you better get on it. Um, And you can find us on Instagram at Clothes Horse Podcast. As a reminder, you can reach out to me anytime for the sources I use for the information I share here and on social media. I don't want to brag or anything. I'm totally bragging. I have so many bookmarks. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I'm just like an internet archaeologist now, and I can also suggest some books to you. So many people have hit me up with just like really good and thoughtful questions during the past few weeks, and it's been fun to answer them. And it helps inspire me for future episodes. And don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, or a story to share, please reach out. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. There's the old-fashioned way via email, closehorsepodcast at gmail.com, or DM me on Instagram at closehorsepodcast. I mean, I think, not to brag or anything, but I kind of think Clothes has the raddest community. Like we're all talking all the time. We're bringing people together. We're finding friendship and allies. And I just, I just love it. If you want to take it to the next level and meet other Clothes Horse listeners, you can join the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group. We're having a lot of fun over there, even though Facebook is otherwise pretty boring. I will share a link in the show notes. If you like hearing the sound of my voice, which I mean, who wouldn't? My cat, Brenda, gives my voice a 10 out of 10. (laughs) Check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. It's the fun podcast. We talk about the trends that shape our lives because trends are all around us and it's clothing is only one small part of it. This week was part one of a deep dive into Pantone, which is the color systemizing company that kind of shapes everything we buy or see. The second half will be coming this week, and you'll get to hear my true feelings about the 2021 colors of the year. I know you've been wanting to know. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 